You know, I know Patrick pretty well, and he told me this morning, he said, listen, I, I don't want this to be about me. I want this to be about Jesus moving in me. And when we stand and clap, I really believe that's what we're clapping for. I mean, believe me, God is using Patrick, and he's stepping in and taking the call. But I hope you know something. If you're a follower of Christ in the air, and if you're not, this is a perfect day for you to be here. I would say every day is a perfect day for you to be here, but this is a perfect day because you're going to hear the heart of how the person in Christ has light that they can take to dark places. And that is what Patrick is doing. And you're going to see that move out all throughout our day as we're in this second week of this series called Mastermind. Last week we talked about our thoughts, our thinking, how our thinking can actually push our direction of our life. And we thought about what can we do? Can God take our thoughts that are so negative and can he transform them, take them captive and transform them? Can we have better thinking habits? And I hope some of you took my challenge last week and actually walked through your day and monitored your thoughts and wrote them down. I had a person come to me last service and said they did that for a whole week and by the end they started to be reframed in their thoughts. I hope you tried that because we found out last week that we move in the direction of our most dominant thoughts. We move in the direction of our most dominant thoughts. Today, we're actually going to wade deeper in the water of mental health, of mental illness, of mental struggles. And I'm going to be honest with you today. Today is going to be an intense day. It's going to be an intense mess. It's going to be an intense day. I'm not going to apologize for it because sometimes you need to wade into deeper water and you just need to hold it there because there's something happening in our culture and in our community that we need to actually press into as a church and sometimes we don't do it well. But today I'm hoping that we weigh in well. Last Sunday when I was finished talking about thinking, I left here and I got in my car and I went to a psych ward to visit a young man that's in our community. It's the second time I visited him. He's been in there three different times. He's a beautiful young man. He really is. Such a great artist, great heart. We have a great connection, but it's been a rough year for him. And so I got there and we sat in this little room and in the beginning, it was a little awkward, but I'll tell you something. After that 30, 40 minutes of being together, when I could put my arms around him and we could pray and I could pray a father to a son, there was something that entered into that room that was profound in healing. Do you realize that if you're a follower of Christ in this room, that God has given you a light and you can walk into places and you can share the light. It's not your light, it's his, but you can take in there and it will be transformative. Now, I want you to know something. I see some young kids in the room, and I'm just going to be honest with you. You've already heard Patrick say a little bit. Today's probably a PG-10 day because we are going to use some words. I'm going to be very careful with my words, but we're going to watch a video that's going to have a little of that. So if you're sensitive to that, I need you to know that. But we are going to talk honestly. We're going to talk a little raw. And I want you to know something today, that the goal of today is not to solve this massive issue. We're not going to solve it, but rather we're going to start to shine and illuminate and shed light on the reality that's in our midst. And what I'm hoping that we will do is we'll create a deeper awareness. Actually, awareness is so important. When we're aware of something, Patrick wasn't aware of that vet, that homeless vet. But when he became aware, a vision happened. Awareness is so important. Understanding is important. And ultimately, I hope that we find hope today. I hope by the end of the day that you have a vision in your mind of hope. And of course, we're going to give you some practical steps, and we're going to hear from our resident expert, uh, Dr. Carter, as she walks us through some statistics and reality of what we're in the midst of. So let me pray, and let's see what this particular service brings. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Patrick. Thank you for the Cabral family and our beautiful Portuguese-speaking Brazil church. Uh, thank you for Fernanda to show her story and to share it. 
God, we thank you what you're doing in our midst. And we know, Lord, that when you enter into any circumstance, there is hope, there is light, there is life, there is truth. Father, would you enter in in a bigger way today? Would you let us be aware more of you? Would you awaken our souls? Would you give us your profound eternal hope? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for my early memories of childhood, I said this last week, I'll say it this week and next week. For my earliest memories, I felt like I had depressed thoughts. Probably from my earliest memories of being three or four years old. I can even picture it in my mind in the little tiny house that we first grew up in. And so it's always been there. I've always explained it sort of like a, a, a storm coming in in the distance and I could feel it coming in and there's different seasons that it's moved in my life. But what's interesting is in the culture that I grew up in, in the time that I grew up in, we did not talk about mental health. In fact, what most of the time we did is we pushed it away. We hid from it. What's interesting too is we had interesting language surrounding it. We never really spoke about it, but we had code language. Like uh, that neighbor, she's a little off, you know, or this guy's a bit crazy, or they're not quite right. Or worse, we would have names that were very derogatory. And as kids, we would use those freely. There was an old building in our neighbor not far from us, and it was a hospital. And we knew that if your mind broke down to a certain point, you'd be put in those walls. And it was kind of this dark, mysterious place. We kind of poked fun at it. We even had a top 10, Billboard top 10, number three hit at the time on the radio called They're Coming to Take Me Away. I don't know if you know that song, They're Coming to Take Me Away, They're Coming to Take Me Away, To the Funny Farm Where Life is Good. That was the song, and it was a huge hit. And so it provided this and started to really uh, develop this deep stigma around mental illness within our culture. Not only that, but in the faith tradition that I grew up in, we never talked about that. We kept it at a distance, and at its worst, when mental struggles got to the point of despair, and even led to death, there was a theology that said that that was the unforgivable sin. That you could never be accepted if you took your own life. Not long ago in this community, maybe two years ago, I met with uh, an older woman that's no longer here, and she, her and I were really good friends. I loved, I loved her to death, and we had a lot of conversations, but one day she said, would you come to my home and can we talk? I have a lot of questions about faith that I wanna ask you. And I said, sure. And so I went to her apartment and we sat there for three hours together. It was an awesome conversation. But at one point, she grabbed my hands and she said, I need to tell you something. About 50 or 60 years ago, my son died of suicide. And after the service, we went home and the faith leader in that community came to our home and he sat down with my husband and I and said, I'm so sorry that your son did that, but you will never see him again because he committed the most unforgivable sin in God's eyes. This 80-some-year-old woman grabbed my hands in tears and said, would you pray with me? Is that true? Now, I'm gonna tell you something. I grew up in that. And I know something. In scripture, there is an unforgivable sin. You can look it up. It's not that. How we handle this in a faith community and in a church is so deeply important because we can scar souls for decades. And as a church, we are called to be a community of light rooted in the truth of Jesus. So when I struggled with depression from an early age, guess what? I started to think that I was broken. There was something wrong with me. I was ashamed. I was even thought I was weak. 
At certain times, I think I even believed subconsciously that I wasn't worthy of God's love. Now, my parents did an awesome job. They still do. They still really understand me. I had this funny moment with my dad on money because I was not having a good day. And uh, he still knows how to talk to me to get me out of that hole. He's great. But the church was the last place I would think I would want to go. The last place I'd want to walk in when I'm struggling with that would be church. And so I learned to stuff it down deep, and I learned to walk away and be tough it out, and I did that for decades. The church is so silent on this topic. It has been historically. And I can't speak to the great big church, but I'm going to speak to our church. And for me as a first among equals in this particular part of Kensington, I am so sorry that we haven't been more vocal about this. Because this is a real issue. And we need to be able to talk about it. We need to be able to enter into it. And I'll tell you why I'm most sorry. Because I truly believe that Jesus Christ has the ultimate thing to offer in this particular situation. I really do. In fact, I would say this, that I believe that Jesus has everything to offer. Now, I'm not going to say that when you meet Jesus, all of a sudden, you're fully healed. You've heard me speak openly about my lifelong struggle with depression and anxiety. When I met Jesus, I wasn't fully healed. I don't think that God is a genie in a bottle that we rub this, this, this kind of lamp and then, we, and then it comes out and we get what we wish for. Or some kind of like vending machine where we put in enough quarters of good works and all of a sudden we get what we want. I don't believe that and I'll never teach that. But I will tell this, and I can tell you from my experience, that when you meet Christ... And he enters into your life through the power of his spirit. Something changes. It enters into our circumstance in a new way. Was I healed fully? No. But has there been healing over a 20-year period of time? Yes. And through all kinds of different means. When I met Christ, he brought all kinds of things into my life. Counselors, people, his power, his word, prayer. All of this came together. I remember one time I even went to a counselor who was an atheist, and he was the one that actually pulled me out of what I needed. And 10 months later, he was asking me about Jesus. We don't know how God's going to work, but he's going to work, and he's going to bring in light to our dark places. One of Jesus' closest followers, John, he was super close. In fact, I love John because he calls himself the beloved one. He's a little arrogant. We like that about him. But he thought he was the best. He probably was. But he wrote about the life that he experienced when Jesus was in his life. And this is what he says in John 1. In him, in Jesus, was life. Listen to that. In Jesus is life. Some of you have come today not feeling like there is life in you. I'm telling you today, in Jesus, there is life. He says, and the life was the light of all people. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. You know, years ago I used to teach uh, this particular passage and one similar to it, and I would say that darkness cannot coexist with the light. And my friend Jessica came to me and she said, I don't think that's true. And the more I thought about it and read about it and studied it, I think she's right. I think there are there is darkness, but I, what I love about what John's saying here is there may be darkness in your life. But the light of God, that darkness can never overcome it, even through death. That darkness can never overcome it. 
the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And then he says this, this is one of my life verses. He said, this is the message we heard from him and now proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In him there is no darkness at all. Listen, this is a, this is a powerful concept. We don't understand what that means. Look around you. I'm not talking about these kinds of lights. In fact, that word in the Greek is foes, and it's a name forgotten. It means the pure, the powerful, the ultimate, the transformative light. We, we don't know that kind of light. Look around you. There's shadows all around us. We, we, we live in a world with darkness and light. But in Christ, there's no darkness at all. And so here's what you need to hear from me today as well. The church is not a hospital, meaning I'm not a trained psychologist or counselor or psychiatrist. Many of the pastors are not doc doctors. But what we have and what you have if you're a follower of Christ, in Christ what you have is the light of the world. It says that Jesus is light and life and truth. And there's power and authority that. And we need to be a place that is bold with that light. And what I dream about our place is that this place would be a place that people would come first that they would want to walk in these doors because a light exists here that can push back the darkness that they feel is overcoming them. That's the dream for the church. So we're going to hear Dr. Carter. She spoke to us last week. Uh, this week she's going to give us some stats and reality of what's happening within our midst of our culture and our community. And as we do that, we're going to receive our offering. And so if you come prepared to give, awesome, thank you. Uh, this is for us that call this home and that are following Christ this is our moment where we want to invest uh, part of what God has given us to actually pour into a community of light here and in this region, in the, in the world. So be part of that. If you're brand new, this does not have to be your moment at all. Uh, your moment's out in the lobby. It's called The Hub. We'd love to shake your hand and hear your story. And, of course, you want to take part, fine. But we always do this. We always say how we give. Uh, so we'll give here in the pouches. Many of us, over 80%, give online. And there's many ways to do that. Uh, on our, you can go to our website, kenziechurch.org. You can also download our app, which many of you do. Or you can text 77977 to Kensington. But thank you for your generosity. Thank you for pouring into this beautiful community. Uh, let's take in Dr. Carter, let's take in these facts, and then we'll see what Jesus has to say about that, and then I'm going to give you an image at the end to hold on to. Dr. Carter, thank you again for joining us today. I'm so glad that you're with us. Um, today what we've been doing is we've been talking specifically about mental health, but also the stigma that comes with this topic. And in our culture, but I think especially in the church, oftentimes it feels like the topic of mental health is taboo. And I'm curious, like, why do you think that is? Why is it hard to talk about? Broadly speaking, I think mental health um, has been difficult for people to understand and that it's a longstanding history. Um, so in this country and actually globally, um, you see people with mental health problems as being portrayed as um, very odd, uh, unusual um, people, sometimes being violent because they have mental health problems. And because of that, there's been a lot of withdrawal from those individuals. There's a lot of fear that I think the general public has um, or has had because of people with mental illness. Um, and it, it's simply because they don't understand what's going on. I think we see uh, individuals who 
believe that their immoral behavior or sin has caused their mental health problems. So they don't, they don't want to talk about it because then they also have to talk about the sin that supposedly caused sure. the problems too. Um, and so there's a lot of silence there. Um, and then in general, there's a lot of shame, I think, in the Christian community when we have mental health problems um, because we assume that our faith should make us better. Right. You know, And there's a lot of pressure that we put on ourselves um, that we're not good Christians if we're not healthy. Um, and, and so that lack of transparency, I think, um, is the result of feeling that shame. So in recent years, there's been a lot more sensitivity, not just in the in the general public, but also in the church, um, toward people with mental health problems. Uh, I just think there's still there's still some work to be done. There's still some misinformation out there that's leading to uh, that stigma lingering around a little bit. So, so let me ask you this. For those of us in the room who may not know or understand the data around how prevalent mm -hmm. this actually is, can you give us some insight into exactly what we're talking about? Roughly 46% of the American population will experience some type of diagnosable mental health problem in their lifetime. Um, so that's pretty close to, to half the population. Right now, about one in five adults will have some type of mental health uh, disorder in the in a year's time frame, um, and one in six children, so ages roughly six to 17 minors, will have some type of mental health diagnosis within a year's time frame. People who have a mental health disorder typically live significantly less um, long than those who don't, so there's a 25-year difference that we see. Um, and for people who have mental health problems, it's, they shorten their lifespan. A lot of that is because of the chronic medical conditions that often come along with having a mental health disorder, uh, a severe mental health disorder. Uh, we also see that anxiety accounts for about 20% of the diagnosis that we we assign with uh, depression not being too far mm -hmm. from that. Sure. Um, there is no significant difference in terms of the occurrence of mental health problems from those in the general public to those who are in the church. Um, and so uh, your faith doesn't fix you, you know, right. in, in that regard. Um, and then suicide is, unfortunately, has increased significantly, about 33%, um, from 1999 to 2017, which is when the CDC did the, their last publication on it. And suicide is the second leading cause of death for um, people ages 10 to 34. It's the fourth leading cause of death for people ages 34 to 54. Um, and in the state of Michigan, someone dies by suicide every seven hours. So when I hear these statistics, I mean, it feels like especially suicide is increasing, but I mean, a lot of them seem like they are as well. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think that is? Like, why are these rates increasing over time in the way that we're talking about it? Well, part of it is uh, professionally, you know, I can, I can speculate to this. Um, we have come up with more sensitive ways of measuring for mental health issues and symptoms, and so our diagnostic tools have become more advanced in that regard. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure as well, you know, from teenagers and adults are experiencing that has increased over the years. Um, pressure to be perfect, pressure to be successful, pressure to be uh, fill in the blank, right? Sure. Um, and that pressure, you know, leads to anxiety. It also leads to a sense of um, wanting to escape. Right, I don't want to be here. Um, helplessness and hopelessness tend to be predictors of suicide, and so when you have the the 
withdrawal of the general population from the church, right? That's a part of it as well. Um, they're not getting those gospel messages of hope, you know, and now they're getting messages of um, negativity of, you know, through the media, you see all of the destruction in the world and all the bad things that are happening and there's nothing to counter that. There's nothing positive to counter that. Um, and so despair can set in and lead to um, wanting to take your life because of the things that are going on or even short of wanting to take your life, anxiety and depression increase because of all the things that you're exposed to. Sure. I think of the parents in the room who have teenagers in particular, right? And you said like, especially that, that number has increased. Mm -hmm. How would you talk to a parent about that and having that conversation? Because I think that probably some parents would go, well, I, don't, I don't even know that I would want to plant yeah. that seed or I don't even know that we would even want to talk about depression like that. What would you say to them? Right. You're not planting a seed, right? It's a myth that if we talk about it, then somehow the person's going to do it, right? So I think when we don't talk about it, then the people are going to do it because they feel like nobody cares, right? Um, and so asking the question gives the gives the person permission to say, yes, I'm hurting. This is what's going on with me. I'm terrified because I'm thinking about taking my life. That's not... That's not a comforting thought, right? That's a terrifying thought. And so um, I would encourage parents or, or spouses or whoever um, to say, you know, I've noticed these things about you. I notice you don't seem as happy. I've noticed that um, you're more withdrawn. I've noticed that um, you're more irritable, you know, and I want to understand what's going on with you. Can we talk about how you're feeling? Um, and in that conversation, you can ask, have you had thoughts about hurting yourself? You know, I know that's scary and, and we don't want to bring that up, but it's so important to go there um, with your child or with your loved one to make sure that they're feeling safe. So even in just what you were describing with the numbers and the statistics that you were giving, it feels like there's almost a spectrum or there's kind of a range of people that are kind of walking this journey and, and what that looks like. So I think my question is, what would you say to the person who's going, I might be somewhere in that spectrum, but I'm not exactly sure where. What's right. my first step to take right now? I think being honest with yourself about what you're, what you're experiencing and what you're feeling, being vulnerable, not being afraid to be vulnerable. I think denial is uh, a very comfortable place to be. And um, sometimes we get lost there and, and we even minimize to ourselves what we're experiencing and we put on this front that um, things are going so well and we're feeling good but really on the inside we're not feeling great and so um, being vulnerable enough with yourself to say I need help you know I'm, I'm not doing okay and then closely following that step would be the next step of then finding a person to talk to you know taking that courageous step and saying to someone that you trust a safe person I'm not okay and I need help um, I think if you can have someone to walk along with you during that journey, it makes a huge difference in terms of your outcome and your healing process. That's great. Dr. Carter, again, thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really moved by those statistics. It's very sobering, especially the one that said that someone with uh, dealing with a deep mental illness is ha less likely to have a long life. 25 years difference. Isn't that unbelievable? 
And so I just want you to know that we are passionate at Kensington about the care of our community. We do the best we can. We may not be the best, but we are passionate about Chris Cook and his team just do an incredible job, in my opinion. And so I just want to stop for a second, and I just want to give you some resources. After you kind of hear that, uh, it's good for us to just give you resources. So please put that slide up if you can. And this, I would love you to take a picture of this. Uh, pull out your phones now. You don't have to be shy. Take a picture of this. Write this stuff down. We have campus care providers here through that time of the day and week. Uh, you can go on our line uh, anytime to find resources. We have great resources for care there. And if you need help right now, uh, that particular number. So just take a picture of that, please, uh, if you want it. Uh, and then also I have two phone numbers that I want to give you that are essential. Uh, and these, these really have been phone numbers that I've used even in the last six months. I've used them a couple of different times. You can go to that next slide. Uh, these two numbers are really important. I would love you to take a picture of that. And I would love you to put these numbers in your phone. And here's what I want you to do. When you put these numbers in your phone, I want you to put in the letter A first. A and then space, Suicide Crisis Center, A space, crisis text line. Because when you do that, they go right to the top of your list on your phone. You hit your contacts and they're right there. I'm not telling you, I've used this at least three or four times in the last six months. So write those down, take those. And if you're here and you need to speak to someone, those are wonderful resources. We really do want to be a place that looks at this holistically and really go, be eyes wide open as we're dealing with this. And so I want to give you a little bit of a journey of my particular uh, take on how I ended up following Christ, but in particular through the lens of someone that dealt with severe anxiety and depression. And I just want you to know that my late teens, it kind of uh, played itself out as a typical teenage way. I was very intense depression, anxiety in those particular years. And at the end of my teen years, there were three losses that profoundly affected my faith in my journey. The first one was a friend of mine that I went to high school who unfortunately did uh, die by suicide. And I was one of the last people to see him the night before. And the second one was uh, my dad's best friend. He was a priest, a pastor. We loved him. He had profound influence on my life. Uh, he died in a tragic car accident. And the third one was my cousin Craig. He was about 27, 8 years old. He succumbed to cancer. He was also studying to be a priest. I think really honestly that Ed Johnstone and Craig Turkovich were the two that brought me here. I never thought in a million years as a musician and artist I would be a pastor. But I really think that they poured into me at that young age and I can look back now and say this is why I stand on this stage and believe so deeply in Jesus. But those three deaths really started to twist my mind. That and the idea that I was struggling so deeply with depression and anxiety since a young age. And so it pushed me on a journey and I started wondering why is there suffering? Have you ever wondered that? Why all these heads going, yes. Have you ever said yes? Why do things happen? You know, why do bad things happen to good people? And my dad, I think, was the one that said, well, you should read a book called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People. How many of you read that book before? It was written by Rabbi Harold Kirshner. And so I read that book. It's a powerful, powerful book. And he wrote that book because his son was born with the Benjamin Button disease, the disease that is a rapidly aging disease. And here he is, a rabbi. He's following all the rules. He's living of what he thought was the right life, yet he was dealt this hand. And he really struggled in that. And so I related to him. And I read the book, and it's a powerful book. It still is. He was looking for answers. And I read this, I remember, in the book. It says this. To ask, why do the righteous suffer, and why do bad things happen to good people, is not to limit our concern to martyrdom of saints and sages, but to try to understand why ordinary people, ourselves and people around us, should have to bear extraordinary burdens of grief and of pain. And I remember reading that thinking, yes, 
Like, why is that? And I found comfort. The book, really, he does have just beautiful perspective. And I really found comfort in his words and his perspective. But I still blamed God at that point. And I still started to move further and further away from Jesus. And I wandered into a place of atheism. And I started studying Ayn Rand and this thing called objectivism. And basically the idea is that we are the highest beings. That there is no purpose to our life. And it really, there's no purpose, there's no meaning to suffering. It is just what it is, and there's nothing beyond it. And so I lived there for a couple years, but I found that that was hopeless. I didn't really attach to that. I said, there has to be something more. And so I started to wander into different religions and philosophies trying to understand suffering. And I stopped for a minute in Buddhism. And I'm just going to explain this very elementary. It's a lot, much more complex. But in Buddhism, they have a cycle that's called samsara. And it's this cycle of suffering. It's this birth, death, rebirth, birth, death, rebirth. And the idea is you're in this cycle of suffering, and as you gain more enlightenment, you start to escape from the suffering. You get above the suffering. And so the whole idea was to escape from that. Many religions are like that, and Scott Sundquist, who's a great author uh, and leader, he writes it this way. He goes, most religions of the world, responding to human problems, pain, suffering, aging, death, injustice, mental illness, find the answer in escape from the physical world. The goal in most religions is to escape the physical world and to exist even in a semi-animated state in the spiritual realm to separate from the endless cycle of suffering in this world. Thus, in most religions, this physical world with its brokenness and suffering and decay and death is nothing but an endless cycle. There's no progress, no moving forward, no escape. And so I stayed there for a while. And I started to really study that. But as I meditated on it and started to meet people who were trying to remove themselves from the suffering, I felt it was fake. I felt that it was inauthentic. I wanted to try to find some kind of faith that I could actually hold the suffering of the world because it was a reality, but actually find peace in it. Like, do you want that? Like, I want to understand, what does it mean to walk through life and the storms of life? I always love Steve Andrews. Steve Andrews is a founder of this movement. And I remember years ago, I remember coming into this room, and he explained it this way. He goes, we're all in a storm. He goes, you're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or ready to go into a storm. I was like, what kind of positive message is that? Like, what? You know? But is it true? Yes. There's truth to that. I mean, we don't have to be hopeless in it, but that's the truth of life. That there is suffering. We're in it. And all of us are in it. And so I wanted something authentic. And then I read a book by a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. Man's Search for Meaning. And I remember reading that. Viktor Frankl was in the concentration camps. He was seeing the most evil. He was seeing death. He was seeing all of it in the most profound way. And he came out of this experience, he survived it miraculously, and he wrote this little book that even to this day is inspiring. And he wrote this. He said, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. Those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. Those who have a why to live can bear almost anyhow. I remember reading that, and Viktor Frankl took my hat and started pointing me back to the road to Jesus at this moment. I said, man, there's something there. My perspective started to change. Here's the remarkable thing about the Christian faith. Jesus, who's the center point of the Christian faith, 
did not try to escape suffering. Actually, the most profound part of it is he entered in. He's not a distant God. He's a God that says, no, no, I'm not going to try to escape it. I'm actually going to come into it. I'm going to leave the most perfect heavenly home, and I'm going to come near to the creation. I'm going to come near to you. Some of you feel maybe God's a distant God, but I'm going to let you know today that God is near, nearer than you think. The Christian faith is this raw faith that Jesus would enter in God and human and come into our existence and actually come close to the suffering. It's amazing what the prophet Isaiah wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus entered our existence. In Isaiah 53, it says this. Jesus was despised, this prophet was writing, that the Savior was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. If you go to Israel, there's a road called the Via Della Rosa, and you can walk the way that he, Jesus walked through the city to the cross, and that means the way of suffering, the way of sorrow. It's a beautiful song written a long time ago uh, that was called um, Way of Sorrow. You have come by way of sorrow. You have come by way of pain. That's the reality of the Christian faith, that God understands our sorrow. He understands our pain so much so that he would enter in with us. But he would enter in bringing something for the suffering and the pain. He would enter in bringing glory and light and life and power and authority. The Apostle Paul, who had a profound experience, he was living in this life that was serving at a powerful experience with Jesus. The light came in, it transformed his life, and he went on to speak about this. In many of the writings of the Apostle Paul, he talks about suffering, and then he talks about glory. Not as two separate things, but saying they actually commingle there's actually purpose and glory in the suffering and the things we go through. And we see that in the life of Jesus. Many times we talk about the victory of Jesus. He is, that God is good, that God is victorious. All of that's very true, 100%. I believe Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way, and he has ultimate victory over all things that anyone who places their faith in Jesus will never perish but have eternal life because God didn't come to condemn the world but to save it. I believe that. And I've watched that play out. But... Rarely do we say, let's brag and boast about the sufferings. How many times do you walk through your day and go, man, I'm just suffering like crazy. It's awesome. <laughs> like, do you do that? No. You're just like, many times we try to cover that out. Like, ah, it's great. Everything's awesome. Everything's great. No. There is a reality to our existence. There is suffering in this world, and we are going to have pain. But guess what? On the other side... There's something bigger than that. And Paul writes about that in Romans. If you want to read something tonight, go and read Romans 8, New Testament scripture. Paul writes this. Now, if we are children, for those of us in this room that claim Jesus as our Savior, if you are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul says I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Say in us. In us. Say in us. in us. Thank you. I love you. In us. Listen to that. Don't miss this. That will be revealed in us now. Not in some other time. Of course, that is going to be. We believe that fully. But in us now. In us now. That God can enter into us now. 
and bring glory, even in the midst of the pain that we are in. Don't miss that. And I don't tell you this as some kind of cheap pastoral thing. I tell you this because I've struggled with darkness my whole life. Listen, I understand. I've been in the hospital beds. I've been struggling with anxiety and depression. When Jesus entered in, I had pain and confusion and darkness. But something entered in that profoundly started to change it and started to be with me in the journey. I don't say this just to say, hey, this is more work you have to do. No, I'm telling you, I am proclaiming that to you today to be true. That there is hope in light, in life, in following Christ. And so I want to give you three quick reminders of what we just said, basically. First one is this. God chose the way of suffering. God could have done it any way he wanted to, but he decided to choose the way of suffering and enter in with us. Scott Sundquist says it this way. Suffering has a way of focusing one's life and thoughts. It must not be forgotten that Christianity was born in suffering and oppression, inspired by a prophet who identified with that. One of my favorite scriptures of all is when Jesus is with his disciples and he's going to leave the earth and he has just a limited amount of time. He says one of the most honest scriptures in all of, of, of all the Bible. It's one that is, for me, so deeply I'm so deeply connected to. He says, I've told you all these things. He's telling you these all things so that you may have peace in me. And then he says this, in this world you will have, in this world you will have, but then he says, take heart. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart. That word is tharseo. Say tharseo. It actually means take courage. Have courage. Why? Because I've overcome the world. How honest is that? He's saying, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But guess what? I'm bringing something that is bigger than your trouble. That I bring something that's going to permeate that. That this darkness will never overcome this light. That God chose this way of suffering to be with us. Second one is God is in our suffering. In Christmas, we celebrate that. That John says it this way. The word becomes flesh and he made his dwelling among us. God is with us and he's in it. He is not distant. He is close and then the last one is this, God's church shares in the suffering. God's church shares in the suffering. Galatians says it this way, that we are actually called to bear one another's burdens. And in this way, we actually fulfill Christ's law. We actually fulfill the calling that we are to bear one another's burdens. One of my children, uh, ever since he was young, has struggled with deep mental illness. And uh, one, sometimes he gets to the place where he has no hope. And I remember this happened not long ago. And I looked at him and I said, I know you don't have hope today, but will you allow me to hope for you today? And he said, yeah, I will. And I hoped for him that day. It's the best I could do. The church is called to actually be a body. And it says that when one part of the body, even like you imagine like when we, when we pull our toenail or something on our pinky toe, like it's so hard, I can't walk. But that's how the church is many times. We have these little parts that we don't think are significant, but when one part suffers, we all suffer. We're called to bear one another's burdens. So years ago, when I walked away from Christ, when I came back, God gave me a vision. I want to leave that vision with you today, this, this, this kind of picture. 
Because when I came back to Christ, I was reading that scripture that I shared earlier that said there's no darkness in God at all. And I was thinking, what does that mean? And I was contemplating that. Now, God doesn't speak to me in a voice, but he gives me new thoughts like we talked about last week. And so a thought came to my mind, and I felt like it was God speaking to my heart. He said, do you remember when you had your back to me? And he, all of a sudden in my brain, he gave us like a picture of this light. He gave us a picture of light, and he said, do you remember when you had your back to the light of God? He says, what did you see? What do I see? What is that? Say it loud. Darkness. I see my shadow. And I remember having this image, not this exact one, but close, in my brain. And I was like, yeah, what do I see? I see darkness. I see my darkness. I see my shadow. He's like, when you have your back to me, that's what you see. And that's what you actually follow. He says, I need you to turn to me. What it means that I have no darkness is when you turn to me, when you do everything you can to make me first, when you do everything you can to turn your light towards this light, where is the darkness? Where is it? It's behind me. Is it gone? No, thank you. It is not gone. It is there. But guess what? It cannot overcome this light. It can't. It can't. Here's what I would say to us today as a church. I just read a book called Troubled Minds. My friend Nicole Wilson gave it to me and said, I need to read this before you speak. And, the, and one of the authors, they, they had their parent, one of the parents, I think it was had schizophrenia. And there were three things that she learned. Number one, you don't talk about it. Number two, you pretend it's okay. Number three, no one's gonna understand. I lived that way for a lot of years. Here's what I wanna to say to us. We have to talk. We have to say things out loud. You must talk, you can't hold it in. When we bring things into that kind of light, guess what, the darkness starts to go behind us. It loses some of its power. We have to speak it out. We have to connect and talk. In our church community, we cannot have this veneer like everything is okay. We can't walk in and say, everything's great, it's okay, everything's, I'm fine. We need to be a church that's raw and says, it's, it's okay not to be okay. We know that God's okay. We know God is okay. God never changes, he's perfect. But we're not. It's okay that we're not okay. We can say it. And then the last thing, and I need someone in this room or maybe multiple people or all of us to hear this, you are not alone. You are not alone. And here's what I mean. Even when you are physically alone, guess what? The promises of God say you are actually not alone. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Until the end of the age, I am with you. You are not alone. And no matter what you've done, no matter what you feel, if you're feeling no one will understand, I'm gonna tell you something. They will. We have a lot more in us that some of us are not sharing. We can relate. We need to talk. We need to drop the veneer. And we need to be real. We need to realize that we're not alone. I pray deeply for this community. I pray deeply for this community that we are an honest community. And that we start to realize that the ones that follow Christ actually have the light of Christ and the power of Christ to go out into this community and push back the darkness. We have that power. And I want this place to be a city on a hill that people would point to Kensington or our particular community in this little region and say, that's a place that I will go first 
when I'm experiencing darkness. I'm not gonna run from that place. I'm gonna run into that place. I'm gonna run into that community. It doesn't even have to be within these walls, just within the community. And that's my dream. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing already in our midst. Thank you for your profound light in the darkness. Thank you for what you promise, that we are never alone, that you are always with us. Father, would you start an absolute movement in our midst? Would you let us be people of light that can push against the darkness? And for the person in the room that walked in today that felt they had no hope, would you speak right now to their heart and let them know that they have unsurpassable worth, that you've placed eternity in their hearts, that this world needs them, and that you love them for beyond anything they could ever imagine. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.